Well, we are jumping into Galatians chapter 4, and we will be looking at, once again, what it means like to, what it, what Paul's trying to explain to them about what they've received in Christ, to be out from under the law, and yet now to be free and actually adopted as sons. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 5. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So you've got some quotes from three different commentaries and authors that really meant a lot to me as I was studying this, and I want to share them with you. Timothy George said, while the legal background of these opening verses may be difficult to reconstruct, Paul's general meaning is clear enough. Before a minor comes of age, he has no legal rights at all. He is a nepios, literally an infant. So that word actually means a child young enough that they can't really talk. Maybe babble, but not enough. So we're talking toddler, right? So while we're under the law, we're basically toddlers. Now, what do you know about the parameters and the boundaries and the rules that a toddler needs? They don't know much about life, do they? They're not fearful of anything. The other night, Steve and I had some time between appointments, and we popped in at Bethany's house, dropped in unannounced. I know you probably really shouldn't do that, <laughs> but we did anyway. It was about dinner time. They were just finishing dinner, and we wanted to see those babies because we had not seen them in about a week. And Ann Michael, who is a toddler, wanted to show us that she can now climb up the steps and get up on the top bunk in Ainsley's room. Well, you know what I did the whole time? I'm like this. <laughs> Of course, there's a rail there, but at the same time, she's a toddler. She could topple over. She doesn't know any better. So that's what Paul is telling the Galatians. And that's what he's talking about us even as believers and the Jews. What was happening with the Israelites, the reason God gave them the law was because when sin came in, it brought in chaos. It deformed our souls. It brought in death. And we are unable to discern what is right and wrong. We're like toddlers. And so the law was our boundaries, our parameters. Why? For our well-being, for our protection, for our provision. So he's saying it's when you were a toddler that you needed this. And then Max Anders says, as Jews, we have matured from restricted childhood under the law to privileged adult sonship under grace. It makes no sense to regress to childhood after becoming an adult. So that's what happened to Israel. They've been under the law. They've been in the toddlerhood of coming to know God. And when Christ came in the fullness of time and he died in our place fulfilling the law, he set us free through grace to literally inherit along with him all that rightfully belongs to the firstborn son, the double blessing. So we now have received what the adult son was able to receive once the father determined the time for the child to pass into adulthood. Then John Stott said, God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as a final stop to his step to his condemnation. So do you see the difference there? God allowed the law to show us what sin was. 
to reveal the sin in our own hearts, to drive us to him. The enemy wants to use it against us because he's the accuser of the brethren. And that's exactly what he does. So let's look at some of the phrases we just read. In the fullness of time. Now, what does that mean? If you remember what happened in Israel's history throughout the Old Testament, you follow their narrative from the very beginning, and God is tracing for us the history of Israel, the chosen people through whom the promised one from Genesis 3.15 would come. But at the end of the Old Testament, there are 400 years of silence. Now, just because God was not speaking does not mean he was inactive. He was moving and working. Because just as the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians, then during that 400 years of silence, we have the rule of the Greeks and then the Romans. Under the Greeks, the people were given a common language. Greek became the language of the merchants. It was a common language, somewhat like English is today. And then under the time of Rome, we have the Pax Romana, a time of relative peace and stability. Not only that, they're establishing urban centers all over their conquered territory and transportation and roads so that in the fullness of time with a common language, with urban centers and road systems through which the gospel would spread, God sent Jesus. And he broke that silence with an angel announcing to Zechariah, who was in Jerusalem for his two weeks of service in the temple. And the Bible tells us he was elderly, which I've said before kind of hurts my feelings because they had to retire at 50. (laughs) So this may have been his very last time to be in Jerusalem serving, and he's chosen by lot to go in and offer the incense. And it is there that God breaks 400 years of silence to announce that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son and they would name him James, John, and he would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He is the Elijah prophesied in the Old Testament, the one who would come before the Messiah. So there is a lot in that, in the fullness of time, little phrase right there. Born of a woman, fully God, yet fully man. He had to be fully human to take our place. Born under the law. Like all men, Jesus was required to obey the law. He was the only one who perfectly obeyed. And he said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's what he did through his obedience. That he might redeem those who were under the law. Guilty sinners like you and like me. He came to redeem us by fulfilling the law because we were under the curse And Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin because the scripture is very clear that the wages, the penalty of sin is death. And consequently, he bore our curse in his body on the cross. So by faith, just like Abraham, we are in Christ and his righteousness has been credited to our account. And because we have been given the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us, he is sanctifying us, conforming us to the very image of Jesus Christ, producing his holiness in us. Okay, so let's pick back up and let's look at this passage again and focus in on what it means to be a son. Let's pick back up in verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So he's telling them what they've inherited and then rebuking them for turning back to what they knew before. So what does it mean to be adopted? And we saw in our homework this week that adoption as a son, it's literally a legal term. And in the Greco-Roman world, a childish, wealthy man, childless, wealthy man, could take one of his servants and adopt him. At the moment of adoption, he ceased to be a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate and outside the world as the son and heir. Though by birth he was a slave without a relationship with the father, he now receives the legal status of a son. It is a new life of privilege. It's a remarkable metaphor for what Jesus has given us. And that's from Tim Keller. So in the Roman world, a man could adopt a slave or someone else's orphaned son And when he adopted that son, that son became the legal heir of everything that father possessed. And it was acknowledged by the world and acknowledged by their family. And so that word that he's using would have been something they totally understood. So he was telling them, you've been adopted as a son. And you have received the full rights of sonship. The firstborn son, the double blessing, you have received it because you're in Christ. This is what God has given us because we're in Christ Jesus. And so we're sons of God under grace, adults receiving full rights and privileges. So we're no longer children, no longer slaves under the law. We're adults in inheritance, but listen to this, but children in dependence. Because what does Jesus say? Unless you become like a child... You cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we are to be so completely and fully dependent upon Christ through his Holy Spirit that we understand what Jesus was teaching his disciples just before he went to the cross, that apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. So that means we have, we can claim what the adult son, the firstborn son inherits from the father because of our rightful place in Christ, and yet we choose childlike dependence upon him, knowing apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, when we went to India in 2009, we were teaching a women's conference in New Delhi, and Iva May and I were teaching through the Bible chronologically, teaching the 14 time periods and era, the framework of God's story. And the second day we were there, they were taking us back to the hotel, and one of the principals of a high school was one of the uh, organizers of the event, was in the car with us going back, and she began to tell us about the plight of women in India. And they had shown a video that day for the women that was so disturbing to both Iva and myself. And it was really helping women know what to do and how to reach out if they were suffering from domestic abuse, sexual abuse. And it it really was such a graphic and disturbing video to think that women were actually dealing with this and that there was still such a thing as bride burning and dowry death where a husband would marry a woman and the bride's family had to give him a dowry for the woman, but within seven years, they could come back and demand more. He could go back to the bride's family. It's almost like blackmail, like, I'm going to harm your daughter if you don't give me more money. That was such a thing that in uh, the 1988 or 89, India actually passed a law against dowry death. 
So to understand, you have to understand that in, in India, if you have a daughter, you're given condolences. I'm so sorry it was not a son. And women are treated as property. Well, I mean, we were already shaken. And so we're asking them questions about it in the car. And this principal said, oh, yes, last year we gave an anonymous survey to all the girls in our high school. And almost 100% of them had already suffered physical and or sexual abuse. We were devastated. Ivan and I got back to the hotel room, and we just knelt beside the bed and just said, Lord, help us, because we had just finished teaching through the Old Testament. We were moving into the New, but how do we not deal with this? How do we not show these women that you love them, that you see that you care, and that this is not your plan? This is sin. This is what sin does to women. Sin oppresses women. God elevates women. God protects women. And so we're praying, and immediately Ivan says, Tamar. David's daughter, Tamar, Absalom's sister. And so she got up the next morning. She said, I'm going I'm to tell him I'm going to go back and revisit a story from the Old Testament, and then we're going to connect it to the New. And so that's exactly what she did. She got up there, and she shared the story of Tamar that Amnon lusted after, and he wanted her. And so his cousin says, oh, I've got the best idea. You just act like you're sick. You tell our father, David, that you really want Tamar to come and prepare food for you and feed you because you feel so poorly. And so he did just that, and King David said, yes, send for Tamar. Have her come. She prepared the food. He made everybody live and you know the story, more than likely recorded for us in 2 Samuel, that he forced her, he raped her, and she begged him not to. She pled with him, no, just ask the king, he'll give me to you. And what was the question that pierces every person's heart when you read that story? Where will I go with my shame? Where will I go with my shame? And so when he forced her out, because it said now he hated her as much as he had previously loved her, he forced her out. His, his servants actually threw her out of the house, and she put ashes on her head, tore her clothes, the robes that the virgin daughters of the king would wear, because she was so grief-stricken over what had happened to her. David found out, became angry, but did nothing. He is not our model for parenting. Um, Absalom was angry, held it in for two years. His anger became bitterness, which turned to such deep hatred, it resulted in murder. And he sets up the stage, kills his brother Amnon, and then flees. But every woman who's ever been sinned against feels shame. And she wants to know, where do I go with my shame? And I was able to stand before them and go to Ephesians chapter 1 and tell them, that's the beauty of the promise of God because he sent one who bore our shame in his body on that cross so that we would be shame and guilt free. So if the enemy is shaming you or guilting you this morning, it's a lie if you're in Jesus Christ. It is a lie. And you can refuse that lie because you are a joint heir with Christ. You have been completely forgiven. Your slate has been wiped clean because the certificate of debt that you owed because of your sin was nailed to the cross, Colossians tells us, with Jesus Christ. And we took them to the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 13, it tells us all these blessings that we have because we're in Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In fact, 13 times, maybe I think it's 11 times in 13 verses, he says, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. And we just started walking through and telling them. So we had them stand up and say, if you're in Christ, you can say, in Christ I am chosen. In Christ I am holy. In Christ I am blameless. In Christ I am adopted as a son. And what I did not anticipate is the moment they said that, all 400 of those Indian women broke out in spontaneous applause because suddenly they were equal with a son. 
They realized they were seen by God as sons. They had worth. God saw them. And he blessed them. Just like the firstborn son. Ladies, I'm going to tell you. That's who you are. That's what Paul was saying to the Galatians. And their background was different from the Jews. They had not been worshiping Jehovah God and living under the law. They had been, work, they'd been worshiping pagan Greek and Roman gods, but they'd still been under a sort of law. They had been obeying a religion. They had been making sacrifices. They had been doing things to appease gods who were not gods. In fact, in verse 9, where he talks about the elemental things... Um, Timothy George points out, compared to the one true God, these demonic beings who are behind all idolatry and pagan religions, he said these um, demonic beings were, to say the least, weak and beggarly, like a poisonous snake that has just been decapitated. These malignant forces were now writhing in their final death throes, lashing out at anyone who is foolish enough to come within their reach. Why on earth? Paul asked, would someone who had been delivered from the grasping power of such evil entities choose to come once again within their malevolent control? He's saying, why? Once you've been set free from the demonic influence of these religions, would you go back to trying to please God under the flesh again? It is by grace through faith in Christ. It is not of works lest anyone should boast. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer says, here it is again. The devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin. This is what he uses. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. Peer pressure comes in because this is what culture believes. This is what culture is saying is true. And so we're pressed to compromise with culture instead of standing firm on the word of God. The Galatians were feeling pressed to compromise with these all-knowing Judaizers who had come in telling them you need to be circumcised and you also need to live under the law. And Paul is rebuking them, saying to them, no, why would you go back to bondage? You've been set free in Christ. Grasp what you, what every spiritual blessing that belongs to you in Christ Jesus and live from that place of blessing. Colossians 2, 15 and 20 says... Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He disarmed the enemy when he died, was buried, and rose from the dead. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Since you died with Christ to the elemental elemental spiritual forces, here we see it again, of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? So that's what we say. You don't have to go back and obey the feasts and the laws again. Christ actually fulfilled all those things. All the sacrifices, all the feast, all pointed to Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled them all. In fact, at the bottom of your handout, you've got a list of the seven feasts of the Old Testament. I'm not going to teach you on those today, but I wanted you to have it just for your information. To see that not only did Christ fulfill all of the sacrifices, being the ultimate sacrifice, sacrifice once for all for our sin. And his blood taken to the altar, the mercy seat in heaven, and literally sprinkled on the throne of heaven, forever covering and cleansing us of sin. But the feasts are actually what some authors call dress rehearsals of what was to come. And the first three feasts deal with Christ's first coming, 
Then we have Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the last three of the feast all point to Christ's second coming. So we can see he's telling them Christ has fulfilled everything that the law demanded. So you're free from the law. Now let's pick back up in verses 10 through 17. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, not only when I am present with you, they seek you. Look at verse 17, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Why were they teaching? You have to come to us to really know the truth. Not just you can go to Christ. Not you've received freedom in Christ. Not you have the word of God to point you to Christ. You have to come to us because we have this superior knowledge. Just what the Judaizers were setting themselves up as. And so Paul's once again saying, I'm so concerned over you because of the legalism that you're falling back into. Breaking the Bondage of Legalism is an excellent book. And in it they said, Christian legalism is seeking to gain or maintain acceptance with God or achieve spiritual growth through keeping a written or unwritten code or standard of performance. It always results in life lived in the energy of the flesh rather than in the power of the spirit. Because the burden of responsibility is on our behavior rather than on God's enabling grace. It is the difference between trying harder and trusting him. It is also the difference between being led by the spirit and being driven by the flesh. The law can restrain our hands, but it cannot transform our hearts. The law can restrain our hands, but it cannot transform our hearts. And for a culture to change, hearts have to be transformed. That's why we are called to go and make disciples of all the nations. Because Jesus said his family in eternity, would be made up of every tribe and tongue and language. Every people group around the world needs the opportunity to hear the gospel because it is transformed hearts that change people that ultimately change cultures. That's why we are to be his ambassadors. We are to be proclaiming the gospel. We are to be serving that we might have the opportunity to share the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we know, even in our own day, that legalism does. Well, for one thing, pride is always linked with legalism. And it leads to judgmentalism, traditionalism, control, self-righteousness, and a critical spirit. Now, I want you to listen to some of these examples of legalism versus liberty. And these are just a few that I've taken out of that book, Breaking the Bondage of Legalism. Think about the way of liberty or freedom versus the way of legalism. So the one who's free hungers for God's word. There's a hunger and desire to know God as he's revealed himself in his word. The legalist critiques the sermon or the teaching. 
That one strikes kind of close to home, doesn't it? The one who's free in Christ lives a life focused on and centered on Christ. But the legalist is focused and centered on self. The one free in Christ fears God with a reverential awe, but the legalist fears man. The one who's free in Christ gets angry at sin, but the legalist is angry and bitter toward God over their plight. The one who's free attends church services as an overflow of relationship and love. The legalist attends out of tradition and a sense of duty. The one who's free serves God out of love. The legalist serves God out of drivenness and duty. The one who's free receives truth and is humble. The legalist accumulates head knowledge and becomes proud. The one who's free rests in being accepted by God. But the legalist performs in order to gain acceptance and approval of man. The one who's free surrenders control. The legalist fights to be in control. The one who's free is accepting and compassionate. The legalist is self-righteous, judgmental, and critical. The one who's free lives by Christ's life, flowing from within and flowing out. The legalist lives by rules imposed by self or others. The one who's free bears fruit and glorifies God. The legalist lives a defeated life because they never measure up even their own estimation. Think about it with me just a moment. Those things that we just read, every single one of the things that depict a legalist do what? Turn us inward. What do we say sin does? curves us in upon ourselves, right? We become a very small package when we're curved in on ourselves. But when Christ comes in and by grace through faith we're saved and he sets us free, he not only sets us free from the law, he sets us free from ourselves. He sets us free from our flesh, from the world and what it thinks, and from the devil. The enemy is the one who lies to us, but we have to stand firm against our own flesh, the world, and the devil. Because the wisdom of this world doesn't come down from God. It comes from the enemy. It comes from our flesh. And so we have to be aware of that and allow God to set us free from being curved in to being set free to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, then he allows us to see as he sees. And he sets us free to take the eye off ourself and instead look out on a world lost and see them like Jesus saw them, as sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. So we look out at our city, and instead of complaining about the political leaders and complaining about the school system, and complaining about the carjackers, and complaining about the poverty, and complaining about the lack of safety, and complaining about the few numbers of police officers we have, which can you even imagine? Who would want to volunteer to do that one? Oh my goodness, if we ever need to encourage and support those who serve as police, sheriff's departments, firefighters, it is now. Yes. 
And you know what? If there's somebody in there that's not doing things as they should, they need to be rooted out and done away with. But that doesn't mean everybody is. There are a lot of them who have given their life to protect us and to protect their families. And they put their lives on the line every single day. So we need to love them and support them and encourage them. But we need to look out at our city that I just described and our hearts should break with compassion because the vast majority of these people perpetrating crimes are lost and on their way to hell. And if we don't love them, if we don't build a bridge, how will they ever hear? How can they ever be set free? How can they ever know that their life is worth so much more than the enemy is telling them? than the way he's lying to them and shaming them and accusing them so that they feel so bad about themselves, they're going to go out and hurt somebody else. He tells them they're hopeless. But we know the God of all hope. We must run into a lost world. We've got the good news. How can we allow ourselves to be turned in upon ourselves when there's so much work to do? There's so many people to be reached, so many people to be loved, so many people to embrace and share the gospel with. Just downloaded David Platt's brand new book. Probably shouldn't have started reading it this morning. (laughs) My heart was already so moved and convicted coming in here. But do you not see the lie of the enemy? He gets us so focused on ourselves and protecting ourselves that we think we have to pull away from the world. When what is Jesus saying? Charge. Go into the world with the gospel. I have set you free. I am with you wherever you go. Go to the ends of the earth. And he promises to be with us. So he doesn't promise to be with us when we're hiding and hoarding. He promises to be with us when we're giving and going. That's what he's calling us to. But the enemy lies to us to instill fear. And what do we know? Faith and fear cannot coexist in the human heart. One forces out the other. Are we going to be women of faith? Are we going to let the enemy lie to us and dominate us with fear? No. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So we are going to choose to be those who focus on Jesus. Because we know this Jesus who came once, this Jesus who did all of this for us, he's coming back. (laughs) He's coming back. And we need to live every day for that day. And it's described for us. We know what it's going to be like. And so we're living for that. We know that that's the last. Ladies, do you realize the, the next thing on the prophetic calendar, the very next thing God is going to do is blow the trumpet and Jesus is coming back for us. That's it. That's the next thing on the calendar. We're literally at the end of the story. And Revelations tells us, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is what Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross. That is the power and the freedom that we have because we are in Christ. So today, what would happen if we really got desperate for Jesus? If we said, God, 
If you haven't seen the Jesus Revolution movie, by the way, you need to see it. <laughs> Steve and I went to see it Sunday night. It is awesome. And I lived in that as a teenager. I was my early teens. I was in junior high when the Jesus movement took place. Our youth group quadrupled. It was amazing. And back then, you didn't have youth pastors. The Usually, the worship pastor did worship and youth. Like, he was a combo thing. And so, our youth group, the youth choir was youth group. That's what it was. Our youth uh, choir so just exploded. We were running out of the choir loft onto the stage, out on the floor. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I remember when they brought drums into the sanctuary. <laughs> I remember the battle that the legalist had who didn't think we needed a guitar or drums because we had a piano and an organ. <laughs> and yet God was doing a new and fresh thing. And the highest baptismal rates in the SBC across its history were from 70 to 75 because all these people were coming in and youth ministry as we know it was birthed in the Jesus movement because what are you going to do with all these youth and college students that have just gotten saved? You have to have somebody to shepherd them, to teach them, to train them and prepare them. And so youth ministry that we've just taken for granted that has always been around, no, it was birthed in the 70s in the Jesus movement. And God is moving again on these college campuses across the nation and it is no coincidence that the the Jesus Revolution movie has been released at the same time God appears to be moving and doing it again. Are we going to be ready? Are we going to be ready? Are we going to allow the Lord to let us be a part of it? Or are we going to be the legalist on the side going, I don't know if that's real, a real movement of God or not. <laughs> People are getting saved. They're getting right with the Lord. They're repenting. Their relationships are being restored. And that's what God does when he pours out his spirit. That's what revival is. It's when God visits his people in his manifest presence and relationships are restored. Sin is repented of because when his manifest presence is here, guess what? You see your sin. All through scripture, anytime somebody was in the manifest presence of God or God actually revealed himself to them, what did they do? Fell on their faces and repented because they recognized their sinful condition in light of a holy God. He gets his bride purified first so that we can receive the lost people that he brings into his body for his glory, for his glory. Oh God, would you do it again? Abba Father, Lord, what a precious sound it is to hear your daughters lifting their voices to you this morning, interceding on behalf of a lost world. And God, praying that we would be in such utter dependence and abandon to you that you could trust us with an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, that's what we're asking for. We don't want to be curved in. We don't want to be focused on ourselves, God. We don't want to be living for our own safety and protection. We want to be living for the kingdom. We want to be bold and courageous for the name of our Lord and Savior, our King. Father, would you commission us to service and would you trust us, oh Lord Jesus, to simply be a piece of PVC pipe in your hand that you might flow through us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, you get all the glory and you do what we could never begin to dream or imagine. Father, you said in the last days that you would pour out your spirit upon your sons and daughters and that many would be brought into the kingdom before we hear that trumpet sound. And Lord, we want to live for that day that we get to see you face to face. And Lord, you've described what you have prepared for us. In Revelation 22, John was able to see. You showed him the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. And Father, it was when I was in India that you allowed me to see what I knew logically, but I saw there's only one tree in the new Jerusalem. There is no more opportunity for sin. There is no more curse. Christ bore our curse in his body and the curse has been removed for all of eternity. And the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him and they will see his face. Father, I long to see your face. The face of the one who called me as a nine-year-old little girl. The face of the one who's been faithful every day of my life and will be until that day I see you. Father, we place ourselves in your hands asking that your kingdom would come and your perfect will would be done. And oh Lord God, allow us, allow us to experience the outpouring of your spirit before that trumpet blows. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.